John 18, 28 through 38. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the, of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah. It's always a good day when we start with the contrast of Ben Bear and Charlotte Thompson on the platform, I think. So that's a beautiful thing. Uh, I'd like to introduce to you, if you don't know him, some of you do. His name is Luke Simmons. And Luke is, um, I'll get into this a little bit more. We're going to kind of do an all of life interview that will then segue into the sermon. But uh, Luke is the lead pastor of Redemption Church Gateway. He's also the founding pastor of that congregation. Uh, he has a history with East Valley Bible Church and with Tom Schrader, and lately he's also become uh, kind of our, the pastor to the pastors at, at Redemption Church as well. So you're also working for Redemption Central, and I yep. uh, wanted to bring you in not only because you're uh, really good at uh, preaching and teaching and you're a good theologian, but also because I think it's good for people to know who you are. So well, welcome. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Great to see all of you. Good morning. How cool is Redemption Arcadia? I mean, I know you guys are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We experience it every week. But, like, this is really fun to be here. Yeah, this good. is awesome. We're glad you came. And, you know, driving out from Gateway, did you leave at, like, 3 this morning? To be able to no, get here no traffic. Sunday morning, it was easy peasy. Okay. So about 40 minutes. It wasn't bad. So tell me, uh, just tell me the kind of the Luke Simmons story. Where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school and what brought you to Phoenix and all that stuff? Yeah, so I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I went, uh, went to high school, kind of born and raised uh, in Denver, and then um, I'm an only child, actually, and both my parents were school teachers, which meant I got away with nothing as a kid, because <laughs> right, there was only one of me, and when, I w when they were off school, I was off school, I mean, I couldn't get away with much, and so I kind of, growing up, we, we went to church pretty regularly, but we weren't actually part of the church, and maybe there's some of you like this, like, I, I do not remember at all a time when it was like, hey, we're getting together with friends from church. Um, most of you, I think, probably have some connections and relationships, and you realize church is more than just being here on Sunday morning, but for our family, that was kind of the extent of it for the most part. 
Um, and so I had a lot of times growing up where I thought I was a Christian. I, you know, uh, one time when I was seven, um, the, the Billy Graham crusade came through Denver and it was at Mile High Stadium. And at the end, you could go down onto the field and uh, pray. And so I went down and I asked John Elway into my heart. And... Uh, <laughs> Not, not really, but, but that was kind of the motivation to go. Like, I could go on the field where John Elway plays. I'm, I'm there, man. So, so I did a lot of, uh, you know, professing Christ. But I don't think I actually was uh, changed at a heart level till my junior year of high school. Had a friend um, who, he became a friend. He was a guy who was probably 22, 23. Had just finished college. And I would see him jogging around the neighborhood. One day I was out mowing the grass, and he stopped by and engaged me in a conversation, invited me to church. He was actually part of a church plant. I thought that was really weird that he would invite me to church the first time I met him. Um, but I was kind of curious about that stuff. And so I went to church with him. The, the big thing was we started reading through the Gospel of John together. So this book that we've been slowly plotting our way through is Redemption Church. And when we got to chapter 6, there's a spot where Jesus has said some really difficult stuff. And a bunch of people say, this is too tough. I'm out. Um, and it was at that point, Jr., who'd gotten to know me and kind of realized, like, I was sort of one way around adults. Like, I knew as an only child, good kid of teachers, I knew how to kind of play the role. You know, my, my, and so Jr. said to me, he said, Luke, you know, I think your friends' parents all like you. Your teachers all like you. But I know that there's kind of a, a double life going on in you. And my impression is that you'd be one of these people that would walk away from Jesus that you're kind of just using Jesus to make yourself look like a good guy. But if push came to shove, you'd be out. And uh, I was really mad about that. Um, but I'm also like, I, part, probably why I was mad is I knew he was right. And so over those couple weeks, God really used that to bring me actually to faith in Christ and to make me born again. And since then, God has just brought lots of different people into my life. Um, I ended up going to the University of Illinois, playing baseball there, and I had some great disciplers there. Then moved out here to Phoenix to be part of East Valley Bible Church, where Tom Schrader was the pastor, and lots of other good leaders there as well who just poured into me and invested in me. And um, even when I was kind of a knucklehead, they were uh, willing to you know, invest in my life. So I'm really, really grateful. So I've been here now almost 20 years. Yeah, my wife Molly and I, we've been married 20 years. We've got four kids, high school, middle school, elementary school, and preschool. Uh, three girls and a boy. So pray for us. It's a lot. So, so the, a couple of things I wanted to zero in on that. You are, you are an NCAA Division I baseball player. You played third well, I, base. I was. I'm you not was. now. Yeah, yeah, but I was. Yeah, so I you, played third base at Illinois. Third base. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I wanted to bring that up because I wanted to make sure you understood that you got a couple of ex-college athletes on the stage because I was on the speech team at Grand Canyon <laughs> University. So, <laughs> Perfect. You were a great hitter, weren't you? you I, was a, I, I was a good hitter. Yeah, he was, was a great hitter. In baseball, there's five tools. There's running, throwing, defense, hitting, and hitting with power. I was a one-and-a-half tool player, so I could hit, and I had a little bit of power. Okay. Yeah. That's good. All right. The other thing, though, was uh, your friend J.R., was it? Uh-huh, yeah. Your friend J.R., when he said that to you, mm -hmm. and you said, I, I had no idea. I, that's the first time I've heard this story. Oh, okay. Um, he said that to you, and you said you were mad, mm -hmm. but you also said, I, I was kind of mad because I knew he was right, that he yeah. was speaking truth to you. Yeah. 
And, and this passage today, we, we have this issue of truth come up. Sure. And I think I told you when we met and talked a little bit about the, the passage, I said, you know, I heard about 10 years ago, um, somebody said, you know, truth's a little bit like poetry. And most people hate poetry. <laughs> because when people speak truth, yeah. it, it can be really hard, but it can also be it can be the best thing that a friend can do for you as well. Yeah, I mean, Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, yeah, right. but an enemy multiplies kisses. Right. Right, it was Jesus who said, the truth will set you free. Yeah. So it, it can sting, but it also has incredible power. Yeah. yeah. So you were, were you sent out from East Valley to plant Second Mile Church? In, yep, in, that's uh, right. Is it in Queen Creek or is it in Mesa? It's, it's in technically East, in Mesa. Mesa. Yeah. Um, we're kind of in this weird spot south of the Phoenix Mesa Gateway Airport. If you ever, you know, like the cheapest flight you can find is on Allegiant, you might head out our way. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're technically in Mesa, but I live in Queen Creek, and we're kind of right at this spot where Gilbert and Queen Creek and Mesa all meet, which is why we just called it Redemption Gateway because that's kind of the region around that airport. So yeah, I was on staff at East Valley Bible, uh, just part of the church, volunteering for a couple years, then on staff for about four years doing adult ministry, men's and small groups and stuff like that. And then they sent me out to plant. Um, I was 29 years old and had never preached on a regular weekly basis. And I don't know what they were thinking, but I was uh, crazy enough to ask if I could go and they were eager to get rid of me. So they sent me out. And it was really, it was really, I think, a great model for the kind of church planting we want to do in redemption. A lot of church plants really, not that anybody wants this, but they end up kind of being church splants. They're not quite a church split, but they're not really a church plant, you know, either because the congregation is kind of holding on to stuff real tight or because the, the guy leaving is leaving in a huff or something like that. I had what I call church planting Disneyland where um, the church was really eager to support and to give. Um, they, did, they threw us a baby shower, actually, when we uh, were getting ready to plant. And um, in one day, that congregation, it was a large congregation, gave like $50,000 in a one-time offering that was really the seed money for our church. So, and then the relationship was good. It was good enough that a couple years later, when the idea came up of, well, what if we all joined together and became Redemption Church? I actually was willing to entertain that idea. I did feel a little bit because East Valley was so big and so prominent in that conversation. I felt like, am I mo- are we moving back in with our parents? Um, <laughs> but that relationship was so sweet and there was such a just sense of like, I believed that when, when everyone else involved was saying, we thought we could be better together, that that wasn't gonna be, we're gonna be better together by controlling you, but by empowering you. And that was my experience. And I think that's been the experience we've had in Redemption over these last 10 or 11 years. So you've been um, a lead pastor for 14? Yeah, just 13 years ago as of last month. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, the last, uh, you you originally went in and leased space. And then then you bought 10 acres next door, right next Uh door to where you were leasing. And then eventually you built there. And it's it's a fantastic campus. yeah. Every time I go out there, it just it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's really pretty. The, ar- the architect that kind of did the redesign of this property, some of you know Jack DeBartolo, he got a chance to kind of build from the ground up on our campus and really did a beautiful job with it. You know, it feels like a DeBartolo building, but it also feels like kind of our community. There's a lot of cool corrugated metal that feels like the old farms that were in that, yeah. that area. Um, there's also just tons and tons of windows, which when we were just recording online video services, I told Jack, I said, you did a terrible job designing a TV studio. 
and it's it's uh, because it wasn't for that. It was for people, and it's it's been a it's been a good journey. And um, the area is just really booming, and we're just meeting lots and lots of people each week that are new, uh, some exploring faith, some that are from other places, but looking for a church. And it's a it's a fun place to do ministry. So um, this passage today that we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, I, I want to let everybody know that, that there's not, really nothing scripted here. We, we go to the preaching collective There together. will be at the next service because <laughs> yeah, we will have already done we'll it. we'll have practiced it. So but you're this the dress is like rehearsal. Walking yeah. the high wire. We don't know what we're doing here. That's right. Um, so we, we go to the preaching collective together, and then we spent maybe 35 minutes just having a conversation about the passage. But uh, uh, everything else is going to be unscripted. You're comfortable with unscripted. I am. And so I think here we go. You guys need to know the Preaching Collective, all the redemption preachers get together. I think Frank talks to you about it. The only person that comes to that meeting with a draft of the sermon already done is Frank Switzer. <laughs> um, now, he's really, he, te- he learns things and he often jokes like, I need to go rewrite my sermon. And we're like, yeah, 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 Frank, you came in, you know, but there are a few times a year where like, it's a loser of a meeting. Nobody came prepared, and we're all like, all right, Frank, what are you going to say? Like, just ha- tell us what you're going to say. Like, bail us out here. And uh, so, that's, so that's I just also want you why... to know this guy works really hard, and now since he's taken over leading that meeting, um, I think it's gotten even better. So. Oh, thanks, and I appreciate that. But that's also why occasionally on Sunday morning I start the wrong sermon. That's why it happens. So <laughs> anyway, what I want to do is is open by reading the the first little paragraph that Uh, Charlotte read for us, um, and and talking a little bit about that, then we'll get into that second paragraph. So, um, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I have three questions or comments about this first paragraph. I'll just give them to you up front and then let you kind of riff on that. Um, The first one is I'm, I'm interested in how piously the Jews are following the law while they are breaking the law. That's just fascinating to me, and I think it's an indication of human nature. Um, uh, Second of all, that line, uh, when he says, what has he done? And they said, well, if he hadn't done anything evil, we wouldn't have delivered him. I mean, who falls for that? But, you know, you can understand why they don't really have a case against Jesus. And then the third thing uh, again, I'm reading into the text, but it, it appears to me, Pilate is appointed by the Roman government to be a governor of this area, and it appears to me that he would just rather not be bothered with all of this. And so, any, any thoughts about any of that? that yeah, you I mean, the, the, the first, your first thought about how piously they are basically breaking God's law, you know, it is, it is an irony, right? And I think it's actually kind of the nature of legalism is all real legalism is focused more on the laws than the intent of the laws, than the heart of the laws, um, right? So I, I, you know, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So they're very concerned about keeping the Passover while the Lamb of God who takes away sin, the true Passover Lamb, they could care less, yeah. right? It's like 
It's like, what would happen if God actually showed up at church? You're like, well, sorry, God, we, we got a service to get through. You know, like, that's kind of what's going on here is like, God, we don't have time for you. Like, we just, had a plan. Just wait in the lobby and we'll get to you. Yeah, or worse, like, hey, get out of the lobby. We don't want you here. And so that's kind of what's happening. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 3 where um, Paul describes uh, what evil people are like. And one of the things he says is that they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. And I think that's what's going on there. So, yeah, it is really striking of, like, they're going out of their way to make sure they keep the man-made sense of the law while they kill God. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that is interesting. Um, you, you talked about Pilate uh, or that question of, like, hey, you know, if we weren't, he wouldn't do an evil, we would have. The thing that I read as I studied that was kind of the idea that Pilate must have known something was going on because he dis, he would he probably knew about the Roman soldiers that had been dispatched to the garden. So there must have been some reason to think that he was sort of semi in the loop. Um, but, but yeah, he, he does seem bothered by this. And you understand it, because if you understand the geo kind of political history, what you realize is Pilate um, really did not want there to be an uprising, right? That's what would get Pilate in trouble was, you know, there's all these millions of Jews crowded into the city for Passover, and the real problem happens if something bad happens. He, he's just trying to keep order. He's just trying to keep the peace. And you see here, he's a, he's a politician that just cares about the practical. He doesn't really care about what's going on. And so what's interesting is you have these religious people who, in the name of religion, don't really care about God. Then you have this pagan guy who, in the name kind of of irreligion, doesn't really care about God. And that's kind of how all of us tend to naturally fall into one of those categories. Maybe you're from a more religious background, and you might be seduced into thinking that your religion and your effort and your you know, religiosity actually earns you points somehow, but you could miss God. And then obviously we're familiar with how irreligious people miss God. But it's, it's just striking to me how you see both of those. Uh, you know, In both cases, people are really ignoring Jesus. So as you're talking about that, there's, a, there's something that Marcus brought up at Preaching Collective that I thought I might not bring up until towards the end, but it fits perfectly with what you're saying there. Um, Marcus made the observation at pre Preaching Collective. Marcus is in Tucson, by the way, so even people in Tucson can make observations. But at any rate, um, he said, and I thought this was really insightful, he said, everybody involved in this process, all the way through 18 through 19, chapters 18 through 19, Everybody in this process is, is uh, involved in self-protection and preserving their own, uh, their own kingdoms and their own agendas. The only one who isn't interested in self-protection is Jesus. He's the only one. He, and, and again, um, we talk here occasionally about how Jesus is the, the sacrificial lamb, uh, sacrificed to, to be our savior, and yet he's also our exemplar. He, he's somebody that we can follow and, and, and live an example by. So Yeah, well, I, even that. like part of what John, I think, is going out of his way to say here is like not only is Jesus not self-protective, but he's stepping into the fire. Yeah. You know, he's like, like last week where Jesus is arrested, it says Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, stepped forward. Right, so John is going out of his way to make sure that we don't for a second think that Jesus is some hapless victim, poor little Jesus who got caught up in the Jewish and Roman scheme. You know, even um, where it says, uh, I've got it here, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In chapter 3, in chapter 8, and chapter 12, Jesus talks about that he will be lifted up. And that lifted up 
uh, John is writing here is a reference to how Jesus will be lifted up on a cross. And so the whole thing is, uh, is Jesus, like, he set his face, I think it says in Mark, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to go, and he's not going to be self-protective. And I think, as you said, that is an interesting kind of lesson for the ethic of the Christian life, is that we so often go, how do I protect myself? How do I get comfortable? How do I feel safe? Um, and, and one of the things that, that I say a lot at Gateway, the definition of love that I got from Paul Tripp, he says that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't demand repayment or that the person is deserving. And so if we're going to follow Jesus in the way of love, then we're always going to be having to move not toward self-protection, but toward willing self-sacrifice. Yeah, and, and again, that brings up another point. And by the way, I love that quote. If ever there was a time when we needed a slide, we needed one for <laughs> that quote. But um, that's true. And then it leads into this idea that I'm going to talk about this, I know, a little bit next week because I already have my sermon. No, that's Tyler's next yeah, week. You had it done by it last was Christmas. Two weeks from now. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Okay. Anyway, but I'm going to talk about this in, in chapter 19 as well. Um, but it just, it keeps coming up in my mind as a reader of all of this, especially in chapters 18 and 19, as you read through this, there's a sense I get as a reader, knowing who Jesus is, knowing the authority he has, knowing the power he has, knowing that he's God, that you kind of feel like, why don't you just take care of this, Jesus? And yet, if he did that, if he did what he had the power and the right and the authority to do, we would not be sitting here today. So there's that, that tension and that irony as well. So Yeah, I mean, just his... Uh, it makes me think of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 12, where it says, for the joy yeah. set before him, he endured the cross. There's a thoughtfulness, there's a poise. Everyone in this story feels panicky. And, uh, you know, Steve Cuss has a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety, not acute anxiety caused by specific events, but kind of ongoing chronic anxiety in groups of people. And everyone in this story feels anxious and nervous and scared. And it, this anxiety is kind of spreading, except for Jesus. See, now he's had his anxiety, right? He had his moment in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. If this cup can pass for me, but not anymore. He is stepping up. He is moving forward. He's on a mission, and he's going to save the world. It's, it's um, again, looking back at last week when they came with all of these Roman soldiers, and they came with weapons and lanterns, uh, assuming that he was either going to fight or, or, or fly, leave, uh, flight, and, and, um, and he just calmly steps forward and says, I'm, I'm who you're looking for. It's, it's pretty amazing. So let me read the, the second paragraph, and then we'll get into that. There's, there's quite a bit there as well. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? And I'm reading inflection into here, so I don't know if that's actually yeah, how Don't you just it, so often yeah. read the Bible and wonder, yes. how did they say How it? did they say this? Yeah. Um, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, 
You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And again, there's that emphasis, you know, where is the emphasis on, is it what is truth, or what is truth, or what is truth, or is it just a throwaway line? Or is it like, ah, what is truth? Yeah, just a throwaway line. Uh, the first question I would have for you, though, is, is back in the middle of that paragraph. Talk about these kingdoms. What's, Pilate feels like he has a kingdom, and he's pretty sure it's the only kingdom. But Jesus is saying, I have a completely different kingdom, so I, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I five, wouldn't even know how he would receive Five that. times in here, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom, if my kingdom, but my kingdom. So you are a king. Yes, you say that I'm a king, right? This is, Jesus is, I mean, this is all this talk about the kingdom. And Jesus, uh, right, the, the big threat here, if you're kind of not familiar with the background of this, is for a Jew to be asserting that he was a king, uh, would have flown in the face of Rome, who's occupying the Jews, right? So for a Jew to say, hey, we have our own kingdom, or I have my own kingdom, is a threat to the, to the Roman occupation, to the Roman rule. So that's ultimately why the, the Jews are trying to kind of stir this up with Pilate, is to go, hey, we want to make sure that, that you realize he's an insurrectionist. Um, and we'll look next week at Barabbas, as a kind of true insurrectionist, someone that was really trying to overthrow things, was a murderer. That's not Jesus. And yet Jesus is not willing to say that he's not a king, right? He doesn't go, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I don't really have a kingdom. He says, no, I have a kingdom, but let me tell you about it. And, and so verse 36 is kind of the negative description of it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus' kingdom has no effect on the world. It's just saying it doesn't originate. It doesn't source from the world. It sources from a different place. It sources from different value systems. So he's saying, yeah, I, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not anything like the kinds of kingdoms you're used to seeing. And then he describes what his kingdom is more positively in verse 37. He says, uh, you say that I'm a king, so here's what Jesus' kingdom is like. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus' kingdom is not of the world. It is of truth. It is of, and, and so emphatically that twice he says, for this purpose, for this purpose. Here's why I came. Here's why I came. To bear witness about the truth, because my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And uh, so I think that that's just an interesting thing. You know, they're expecting a kingdom of, of swords and of lanterns and of fighting. Um, and Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom. And it makes me even wonder today how many of us are fighting for the kingdom of God, but using the weapons of the world. You know, like, uh, we're going to fight back and we got to answer. And, and yet the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are prayer and the Spirit, and the Word of God. And so um, this should shape even how we fight for the kingdom of God. We don't fight like the world fights because the kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. So the kingdom is a kingdom of truth, and Pilate answers, even no matter where the emphasis is, Pilate answers with a question that is a huge deal in our culture today and has been for years and years and years. Uh, people say there's no absolute truth. Truth is contextually bound. Truth is relative. There's no capital T truth. Um, tell us what you think about truth. It, Francis Schaeffer once said, there is true truth. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about, is true truth, capital T truth. But we, we as a culture tend, tend to reject that. And, and Pilate's asking the same question, you know, 2,100 years ago. He's asking the same question as if apparently this argument about truth isn't anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. Talk a little yeah, bit about that. Yeah, one Leslie Newbegin's a former missionary to India uh, from the UK who wrote a commentary on John. He, he wrote this, truth, asked Pilate, what is that? The prisoner is talking a language which is not the language of politics. Like, Pilate's not generally concerned about what's true. He's concerned about what works. He's concerned about power. He's concerned about effectiveness and efficiency. He doesn't care about truth. And so uh, truth is uh, not that important to him. But obviously, it's really important to Jesus as he describes his kingdom that way. So I, I go back in the Gospel of John and think, okay, how did John introduce truth to us? I think it was in John chapter 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that tells me that truth is not this thing out there that Jesus had access to and brings to us. Oh, wow. It's not like, here's a, here's a book on my shelf of the, all the true truths, and I just bring the... I just tell you about that. It's actually Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Just like Jesus is in the embodiment of grace. And I think Paul picks up on that in Titus 3. He talks about that the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce godliness. Well, how did the grace of God appear? In Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so I think you even get that sense in, in the end of verse 37. Uh, if you see that, he says, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is the truth. His voice is the, right, the, the, the language of God is what's true. And Jesus is obviously the embodiment of the word of God. And so um, I, think so, I, I think sometimes we get a little bit like I would go, well, is two plus two four? Well, yes. Is it, abs is it always four? Yes. But I don't think that's the kind of truth Jesus is talking about. I think he's saying, hey, reality is what God says it is. And I'm coming as the embodiment of that reality. Wow. And I'm teaching out of the basis of that reality. And therefore, whoever hears my voice is one of my sheep, right? This Jesus said over and over in, in 10, chapter 10. I thought of that when he said, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. You know, Jesus kept saying, my sheep hear my voice. So I think truth is the word of God, which Jesus is the word of God. So he's truth embodied. Um, that's the best, I, I don't know if that really answers your question exactly, but no, that's what No, it does, and it, and it leads into something else, and I'm, this, I'm just doing this on the fly, so I might, yeah. this may sound a little convoluted, but it feels to me in this passage like there is a struggle between truth and power. Hmm. So Jesus is truth, but Pilate is concerned about power and, and status and position and, and so, by the way, are the professional religious Jewish people. They're concerned about that as well, not necessarily about the truth of Jesus. So there's this struggle. And I think all the time about, you know, lately in our culture, you hear about, well, we need to speak truth to power. And, and it feels like Pilate is trying to, and he's going to later, he's, he's trying to speak power to truth. How are those two, are those two set up oppositionally? Is this a gospel component? Is there, is there a, a gospel question here between truth and power? How do they coexist? If they coexist at all, you can see how I'm sort of processing. This is the part where I wish we had 
scripted this. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even now, I kind of look at it and go, everyone, like, there's a lot of, I think it was 2016 or 17, the Webster's Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth, right? And, and there's all this talk now about you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts, and truth is truth, and... You know, and that expresses itself in lots of ways. And yet what you really see is that everyone's trying to wield the truth for power. That's what I was trying to get at. Exactly. Yeah, like, like, even, and I'm a guest, so you can get mad at me and just come back next week. But, like, believe the science is a statement now that's yeah. like, this is truth. Well, everyone believes the science until it bumps up against the power move you want to make. Right, so if you want to make people wear masks, you say believe the science, and it, it leverages that. If you want uh, to have a man or woman defined by their biological sex, believe the science. Well, I don't know about that. So it's like I guess my point is like everybody's trying to leverage truth for the purpose of their power. Um, Jesus is interesting here because he's kind of not playing that game, and yet he is the most powerful. Um, so I don't. Well, and and that goes Ram, in, ramblings of a few pastors. Yeah. So, Here we go. but that but that leads me to think about, and, and, and I know you know uh, two, actually two things here. I'll wait on the second one, but I've been really interested in this book, cynical theories. I've been telling everybody they need to read it and all that. One of the one of the things that the authors point out in cynical theories is this sort of um, trajectory of postmodernism since the '60s. They say in the '60s and '70s. Uh, postmodernism was kind of a, a fun, erudite, academic exercise of deconstruction that that few people took really seriously because there weren't there wasn't a lot of theory to go along with it. And then in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they they began to realize, well, we need some theory to go along with it. Um, and, and one of the things they wanted to do was to say there are, there is no truth. That's a that's a big tenet of postmodernism which, from the which very beginning. Which sounds like a truth. Yeah, which sounds to me like a truth. I've said that before. It's kind of a truth claim. There is, there is no, no absolute truth. truth. Well, that's a that's an absolute truth claim. Yeah. There is no binary. That's a binary. You know, you you go through all of that, and and I and I believe that's true. So they say in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which part, but okay. <laughs> uh, the, in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, they began to develop theory. Okay, so you have all this postmodern theory in in five or six different areas. Uh, queer theory, uh, race theory, uh, femi uh, fourth wave feminism, you, you go down the line, all of this stuff, post-colonial theory. They began to develop this theory, and out of that theory, without scientific proof, because all of this is qualitative and, and ethnographic, none of it is quantitative research, through all of their writings and all of that, quote, research, now they say in the 20, 2000s and the 2010s, they have said, we now have known knowns. Not truths, but we now have known knowns, and you're not allowed to question the known knowns. So the known knowns are things like, I'm going to use science if it gets my way so that I can have power. But then, and, but then I'm going to abandon science if it doesn't suit my purposes to be able to get power. So you end up with this, with this, with this weird strategy of, I'm going to use whatever I can in order to get power. So the conclusion of the authors, and I would agree with this, is that the postmodern movement has always been about power mm. and not about truth. Yeah, that makes sense. So any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's an interesting explanation, and, and I think it, it seems true <laughs> uh, that, that, is, that that is what's happening. Um, what comes to mind for me is I think about, okay, how do we reach that culture? And we can go, well, there's truth. No, there's not. Well, there's truth. No, there's not. We can just have a neener, neener, neener kind of thing. I think what this passage tells me is like, let's point people to Jesus. Let's go, let's not have a like theoretical argument about whether there is such thing as uh, ultimate truth, which I think there is. But let's look at the person who embodies ultimate truth in Jesus. And I, I think he potentially has the power to break through to a culture who goes, man, I, I don't know what to do with this man. Um, but here's somebody who's giving up power. Here's somebody who's speaking what's true. Here's somebody who's full of love, full of grace, full of uh, humility. I mean, just, there's nobody like him. Um, so that, I think he's our only hope in a, in a culture that's so confused. Um, and I think the danger for us is that we start to f- play the world's game yes. just a different way. Yes. We go, oh, well, they're just trying to fight for power. So we try to fight for power. And I go like, no, the way of the Christian life is to follow Jesus on the path toward death. Um, and I think we need to stand up for the rights of other people. I think we need to stand up for what we know is true and yet not do it in a way that fights like the world fights. And I think it's a, it's a scheme of Satan to get us lured into those arguments and debates because we can't convince anybody of anything ultimately when it comes to the gospel. And that's clear biblical teaching. Even Paul says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I'm not interested in rhetorical devices and worldly arguments. I just want to talk about Christ and Christ crucified because that's really all that matters. And then, and then pray that the Holy Spirit will work in the, in the life of a person to open their eyes and illuminate God's word to them that, that truth is embodied in Christ. Well, and to your point earlier, even Pilate's question tells us this isn't really that new. Right. You know, one of the most disbelieved verses in the Bible is in Ecclesiastes where it says there's nothing new under the sun. We don't believe that. We think our thing is totally new. Pilate's going, no, it's not new. And it's interesting because when you look at this passage and you look at how Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Pilate, you kind of see that Jesus gets under Pilate's skin a little bit. Um, You know, his wife has a weird dream and Pilate's kind of haunted by this man. Yeah. And um, I think that's because he's had an encounter with the truth. And it rattles him. He doesn't know what to do with it. It doesn't fit in his pre-existing categories. And I think sometimes that's what we hope for, is like, Lord, help us to rattle people with Jesus, and then we'll leave them in your hand. So uh, here's here's that other thing, and and I know you and I have kind of had conversations about this. Uh, A number of months ago, John Pope at at, at, uh, Preaching Collected said, you know, you ought to read this book by Simon Sinek. The Infinite Game, and I read it, and I was captured by it. It's not a Christian book. It's a more of a marketplace management and, and visionary book and all that, but what Cynic was saying really applies to the gospel, that what I see happening between Pilate and, of course, for different reasons, the professional religious Jewish uh, people, um, between them and Jesus is Jesus has got, he's playing the infinite game, if you want to describe it that way. They're all playing a finite game. They're in the temporal, he's in the eternal, and he's saying things are way different up here. So talk, talk a little bit about that and how hard it is for people to be able to grasp the fact that, you know, in the eternal scheme of things, what does this really matter? Yeah, I mean, this is where, this is where I just go back to what he says of my kingdom's not of this world. 
And you watch Jesus, and the people who watched him were like, nobody talks like this man. Nobody is like, like, this is a different kind of person. And um, that convicts me, because I feel like how often do people look at the church and go, yeah, they look like everybody else. Um, and so, you know, if we are playing the infinite game, if we are living in light of eternity, if we're realizing that uh, in the end, every death for us becomes a resurrection, then we don't have to live by the same kind of approach. And we realize, like, there's something just absolutely profoundly different and special and unique about following Jesus. And it's freeing. Oh, there's, yeah. there's freedom to be able to let go of those things that we cling so tightly to and are so concerned about and so worried about. It's not that they aren't necessarily important, but we elevate them to an importance that, that distorts our whatever relationship we're trying to have with God and then even our relationship with others yeah. as well. So, yeah. Thoughts? Well, th there's a quote that I, that I read as I was studying this passage, and I just thought, man, this, this is such a great quote. And so, again, we don't have it on the screen, so I'll, I'll try to read it to you. It's, it's Tom Wright, but I think it relates to what we were just talking about. So he says this, the greatest legal system of the ancient world, that's Rome, and its noblest religion, that's the Jews, come together in the center of the world, as Jerusalem was understood to be, and at the center of history. Together they blunder and stumble into an act so wicked, so unjust, so unnecessary, and so indicative of their own moral bankruptcy that before anything more is said, we can already draw the correct conclusion. The man at the center of this storm was indeed dying for the sins of the world. And I just think like, the, the finite game is the best the world has to offer. And the best the world has to offer, in the end, rejects the creator. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, I, even last week, the, the three points of my sermon last week in the, in the arrest and the Peter denial thing were, you know, humanity at its worst, which I think is Judas, and the soldiers, they see Jesus, and they are even kind of blown back by his I am statement, and they go ahead and arrest him anyway. Then you see humanity at its best, which I think is Peter. I think we give Peter a bad rap. You know, at least Peter's there. At least he's trying to follow. At least he's trying to do something, right? He's the man in the arena, and you can critique him, but he's the man in the arena, and yet he's in his own strength. And so you realize humanity at its worst isn't our answer. Humanity at our best, that's still not our answer. What we need is humanity at its truest, and that's who Jesus is, right? He's not using the weapons of the world. He's not playing the finite game. He has his eyes fixed on the mission that God has given him, and he will be lifted up, and he will draw all people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself, and um, there's nobody like this man. Can't think of a better place to, to end, so let me pray for you, and then okay. I'll introduce uh, Thanks, our uh, time of reflection and response, okay? Um, Father God, we're so grateful for, um, for Luke uh, making time to be able to come out and share with us and giving us... Uh, some wonderful perspectives and, and insights that, uh, that again, reminds us that we are better together, um, that we can play off each other, that we can sharpen each other, uh, and ultimately that it draws us unto you and helps us to know you better. And God, our prayer today is that uh, if there is somebody here wrestling with not what is truth, but who is truth, that God... Your, your Holy Spirit would, would open their eyes and that you would uh, draw them unto you and, 
and maybe even draw them into um, asking some questions of the people who brought them or, or maybe the uh, elders and deacons and pastors who will be uh, available uh, during the rest of this service and after the service to be able to speak to them. So God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this time that we got to spend um, talking about your word, talking about your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you thank Luke for coming today? And after service, I'm sure he'll be hanging around up here if you want to come and talk to him or thank him in person for coming. Uh, we're going to enter our time of, of reflection and response now. If our communion servers will please come forward. And also, um, if we have any uh, deacons, staff, or elders in the room who will be standing in the wings uh, available for prayer or for questions or anything like that, uh, you can also come to them as you come up to get your communion kit. Uh, again, we're reminded, I mean, this is, um, this is just a few hours, really, what we went through a few hours after uh, Jesus uh, was eating with his best friends. And, and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had supped, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul tells us later, he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so, uh, as I say every single week, when we step out into that aisle and come forward and take this communion kit back to our uh, seat, we're confessing that we need a Savior. We understand that, that uh, apart from Jesus, we are apart from God. We are lost in this world and the world to come, the new Jerusalem. Uh, but when we come to Jesus, we can celebrate the fact that he's taking care of everything for us. And we should celebrate that. So as we come, we're going to be singing a couple more songs as well. Take the kit back to, the, to your seat when you're ready. Take the elements. And then if, as you feel ready and led, if you can, you can stand and, be, and join in uh, singing with, with the band as we close out our service.
wonderful to be together in his presence today with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Hear this benediction from Psalm chapter 33. Ben referenced it earlier. The king is not saved by his great army, and a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. But our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.